This is Austin Real Estate Investing. Austin Real Estate Investing. We'll be discussing real estate investing in Austin, Texas, and bringing you experts from all different sectors of the real estate game. Your host, Jordan Moorhead, is a real estate agent and investor in Austin and is here to help you get started or to build your portfolio and explore new strategies. Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead, and this is Austin Real Estate Investing. Today, we have Blake Schwanet here with us, and he's going to tell us all about his experience investing in real estate in Austin. Hey, Blake, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Glad you're able to be on and glad you're able to tell me how to pronounce your name before we got started. Uh, I would have never guessed that's how to do it. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. It's uh, it's pronounced a myriad of different ways, but I'm pretty forgiving just because it's uh, it's you know, obviously French and derivation and mispronunciations are pretty common with it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So Blake, real quick, tell us who you are and how you're involved with real estate investing in the Austin area. So I now live in East Texas. Mm -hmm. I live in Tyler, Texas. I fell in love with an East Texas gal and we're settling down here. We got married about a year ago. And up until that point, I lived in Austin, Texas. And so I worked for an engineering company, a tech company up there. And I lived there for about 10 years and currently own uh, multiple properties in Austin. I started out house hacking in Austin, wanted to learn how to scale a little bit faster to reach my financial independence number and continue to increase passive income and cash flow in a scalable form so that I could do whatever I wanted with my time. So I got to the point where I was able to um, uh, leave my W-2 and do investing full-time. And now what I do is I invest um, in remote markets. So I have properties all over the state of Texas in four different markets in Texas, including Austin. And uh, I, I focus, one, on growing my portfolio, and then two, on teaching other people how to do it. Awesome. So, yeah, that's really cool. I think house hacking is a great way to get started. Um, I think it, it's overlooked in the sense of how far it can really get you, you know, over a long period of time. I mean, it's easy to look at things in a year or two period of time and say, well, that house hack really isn't going to get me where I want to go. But mm -hmm. over 10 years, that equity could turn into multiple properties like it has for me. And that could help you quite a bit. So oh, yeah. could you tell us a little bit about your first property and then kind of where you went from there? Yeah, I started out, I was in Austin. I was at the time a bachelor and was moving around a bunch. And I think I more than anything fell into real estate as an output of a, a different desire. Uh, and my desire was I wanted a little bit more consistency. You know, I was coming up on 30 and I was moving about every year, you know, anywhere from, I think I stayed in, the, in one place about two years, but then there were some places I was in for six months. And I was just kind of tired of moving around. And, you know, I always understood some of the value of real estate and some of the power of real estate. But my main assumption was I need 20% down to get into this house, to get into a house. And with the, the median home price around that time was 415, I think. Mm -hmm. And I said, I just don't have 100 Gs. You know, that's mm -hmm. not something I can do. So then, I, you know, I learned a little bit more uh, about it. I ended up putting 5% down on on a four bed, two bath, um, north of central Austin at Breaker and 35. 
Okay. And so if you live in Round Rock, that's Austin. If you live in downtown, that's North Austin. You know, it's different for everybody, but mm -hmm. um, up there by the Tech Ridge area. And so what I did was I rented out the other three rooms to some of my buddies that I care about and wanted to create a, a specific community in the house. And they covered more than my, my mortgage payment at the time, which was fortunate. So I just took my rent payment. I paid down the equity. And at that point, that was really where it started uh, kicking into gear. And I started to really understand some of the value of real estate. Because not only was I you know, making a couple hundred bucks a month cash flow, but on top of that, you know, 700 bucks of my payment that I wasn't paying, somebody else was paying, was going to principal. So essentially, I was making 900 bucks a month. And and I didn't I didn't have any rent, you know, and my rent previously was, you know, 850 or something like that. So I'm right side up pretty significantly there. Yeah. And I, I really just got started with that property. Uh, house hacked another another one once I heard about Apple's billion dollar facility that they were building up uh, up near, let's see, like McNeil um, or, you know, 10 minutes Northwest of the domain. And so I bought about half a mile from there in a, in a beautiful community there that I actually fell in love with when I was looking for my first house in a really mature community there and uh, still own that one as well. Um, but uh, my future plans for these, for these properties goes into, you know, how I feel about the Austin market and what I believe is are some helpful strategies in the Austin market and things like that. So. That's awesome. So when was that just for reference? It was 400,000. That must not have been too long ago. No, it wasn't. Years. It was five years ago. Four, okay. Yeah. Four or five years ago, mm -hmm. four and a half. Yeah. So, and it's, it's wild because right now we're in a really interesting situation where most markets because of COVID inventory has been reduced yeah. and you know, the supply and demand when supply goes up and demand stays the same, price goes down. Mm -hmm. um, when demand goes up and supply stays the same, market equilibrium goes up. And so what's happened with COVID and the inventory challenges that a lot of particularly realtors and buyers are experiencing mm -hmm. is the biggest challenges because inventory has gone down and, and uh, globally, or I guess at least in the United States, inventory has gone down, which has caused prices to creep up just a little bit because demand has only sagged a little bit. Mm -hmm. But Austin, that's not the case. Demand hasn't sagged in Austin. It's actually, you know, everybody's moving there. Elon bought his big old factory over there to make those Tesla trucks. You know, you got Apple that's, they've broken ground on this billion dollar facility. It's being worked on. You've got Samsung up the street. You got Google, you got Oracle moving their people there. And so you've got all these people, a lot from California that are coming to Austin because of some of the beauties of not just physical beauty, but you know, the, the, the food even in Austin. Yeah. And so they're moving to Austin and they're saying, well, I got to have a place to live and they've got to buy it. They have, they're constrained on their time frame, So it's artificially inflating uh, the properties. And what's that, what that's led to practically for me is, you know, I bought a house at 250 uh, four and a half years ago. I oh, owe wow. about 200 on it now. Mm -hmm. And it's a four bed, two bath, a little over 2000 square foot. Um, we listed it at 399 and we're closing at 492. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's and, pretty normal right now. That's crazy. Yeah. Now I've got a good friend who he and his new wife are trying to buy a house and they offered over 65, 65 grand over asking and they got beat by 50 with a cash offer. Yeah. And so just lots of things like that, you know? So, um, 
that's just one of the kind of the crazy points of the Austin market. And um, it's, it is definitely, it's definitely wild. It's like the wild, wild west out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously it's a great time to be a seller, but you can't be a seller unless you get in the market at some point in time. So exactly. Yeah. Of course, everybody that's bought anything in the last 10 to 12 years has done great when they go to sell. Um, there's no way to predict that if you buy now and you sell in two years, you're going to be doing great. But I can guarantee you, if you don't buy, you're not going to be able to sell when prices are high. So right. it's a double-edged sword. It's so right. hard to buy right now. But That's a great point. Even my friends around the time I bought, you know, people... Lots of people will use it as an excuse and say, oh, man, I wish I bought 15 years ago or I wish I bought five years ago. Yeah. And then five years later, they're saying, God, I wish I bought five years ago, mm-hmm. you know, because essentially what you're even in inflated markets that are expensive, like Austin. I think there's a great argument for still buying property in Austin, even right now, even though it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you're essentially betting on the American economy. Right. Historically, the American economy goes up and to the right. And what trails with American GDP most closely? Real estate. The real estate market does. And so it's a very reliable and um, uh, you, you know what you're going to, to get long term out of real estate. Um, more than you would say out of a certain individual stock or active trading or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think there's there's good reason for for people to be optimistic about what's ahead for the American economy and as it represents itself in the housing market. Yeah. I always think you, you need to make sure the numbers work. So mm-hmm. uh, I am not a fan of buying a house and paying in, to, buying a house as a rental and paying in to hold that rental. I don't think that's good logic or good math, mm-hmm. but yeah, as long as it works, you know, I'm looking at properties now and I'm willing to accept a lower return than I would have been three years ago. So, you know, I, I, I think that a lot of people are in that spot where they're like, Hey, you know, I needed this last year or the year before. Now I'll take this as long as it makes sense. And it's in an area I want to be in. Um, yeah, I really, I don't think there's ever a bad time to buy it provided the numbers work. Right. And then that's what, you know, market constraints, like what we're experiencing cause people to get creative. You mm-hmm. know, I, I hadn't up until recently, I hadn't gotten ringless voicemails from real estate agents that seemed really personal saying, Hey, uh, you know, your property over there, it seems really interesting. Lots of people are interested in that area. Would you consider selling it? Give me a ring back. I, I know because of my experience in real estate and direct to seller methods, that this is a ringless voicemail. My phone never rang. It just went straight to voicemail. Mm-hmm. But it's a method that I didn't experience previous to that, right? In 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 non wholesale or distressed real estate experiences. Um, so I think it, it forces some amount of creativity and your ability to adjust and navigate the market so that you can continue to make money and provide for your family and your future. Absolutely. Well, cool. So when you got started in Austin here, you said that was uh, five years ago. Mm-hmm. You were yeah. working in North Austin? Yeah, I was. I worked at a, a tech company up near the domain. Okay. And so I started out, I've got degrees in engineering, and I started out working for them in a technical capacity, managed a bit, and uh, uh, led a support tech organization, and then moved over into the business development sales side of things. And I really, really enjoyed it. 
uh, spent uh, the better part of 10 years in Austin and then moved out here and uh, quit my job so that I could do real estate full time. But really, you know, as I was doing the, the work I was doing, I, I wasn't, it wasn't because, you know, a lot of people's story is I hate my life. I've got to get out of it. You know, I want yeah. passive income so that I can have hope, you know, and that wasn't my story. I just wanted to invest wisely for the long term. And, you know, I'm the, I, I love strategy board games. And so like settlers of Catan, things like that. And that's how real estate appealed to me is you've got short-term benefit of cash flow. If you're investing for cash flow, short-term benefit of cash flow and long-term benefit of appreciation or equity growth, appreciation and principal pay down with the medium term kind of phantom benefit of significant tax sheltering. Yeah. And so that's that, you know, those three things, I said, man, that's awesome. So I started doing it in my free time, investing remotely uh, as well. And in, in communities that essentially, you know, if I'm investing for cash flow, I want to be able to maximize for cash flow. I said, what communities are the best for that? And then I started trying to learn how to minimize the variables of me not living there, but still being able to capitalize on the market so that I could enjoy an incredible, you know, town lake on a Saturday without having to drive hours to go see it, while also benefit from the real estate market of a smaller community that maybe has 80 or 100,000 people in it, because I can cash flow better. And so uh, after that, after a few years of doing that, I got to the point where we were financially free. And I said, well, what am I going to do with my time? So I, I kind of started just focusing on my own portfolio and then on some community stuff. And then I also teach people how to kind of get started in real estate with low or no money down methods. Cool. So, yeah, I love that you talked about, it's not all about people just hate their job and need to get out. I think if, if you hate your job and need to get out, the easier, faster way is find a new job. Mm -hmm. If you just hate what you do and you can't stand to be in it for another day longer and real estate's that ticket out, real estate's a long game, might not be the best ticket out, might be better to go find something else to do on a day-to-day basis and then keep investing in real estate on the side. Right. Um, Yeah. And it's it's definitely not a get rich quick situation, but it, it can provide unbelievable wealth generation over the medium and long term. And so sometimes I'll talk to individuals that want to be a part of my coaching program. And they, they'll say, I just, I got to get out of my job. And my answer is like you said, either go find another job or consider wholesaling, but investing for cash flow isn't going to feed your family next month. Yeah. Right? You, you got to, if you're doing, doing the burr method or even buy and hold, you're not going to be able to feed them next month unless you've already got high six figures or seven figures sitting in your bank account, ready to put down on, a bunch of single or multifamily. So um, it is it is more of a, a long-term game in order to prepare yourself for when that job isn't enjoyable or mm-hmm. when you say, I want options, because options are good. If you've got an option yeah. to go to your employer and say, hey, I want to cut back 50, you know, 50% time, you still, you know, you pay me 50% pay, that's fine. But you know, I want to spend more time with my family or I want to, you know, be more active in the community, whatever it might be. And I think that's a powerful thing to be able to have that type of, you know, uh, choosing power and options that they provide. So, yeah. I love that. I also like, um, you know, keeping some sort of W-2 for a while because you know what's really easy when you have a W-2? Financing. You know, what's really hard when you've quit your job to go full-time into real estate is on Mm -hmm. the same hand, financing. 
Yeah. So if you want to keep buying real estate, you need some steady income there that a lender can prove so you can continue to buy. If you just say, I'm going to quit my job today and I'm going to go full-time into real estate, like you said, unless you've got seven figures in the bank, probably going to be in a hard spot. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons I love the approach of investing for cash flow mm-hmm. is if you know what your core expenses are, you know, and when I say core expenses, I mean, debt obligations, utilities, what it takes for you to live, like just bare bones, not 401k, not vacations, not all these shiny objects, but also not, you know, living off of saltines and peanut butter. Right. And if that number is, let's, let's just pick one out of the air. Let's say it's $4,000 a month. Mm-hmm. That'll vary for everybody, but $4,000 a month. Now, if you can just build up slowly your passive income to get to $4,000 a month, you know, even if you got fired, you left, you got laid off, the market implodes, you you have enough to just live, to sustain yourself. And that gives you options. And then from there, you can you can raise your passive income to what your budget is. And then you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And those type, that type of you know freedom and flexibility is really... Uh, just absolutely remarkable. But yeah, you're right. Some sometimes you've got, you know, there's a there's a delicate balance to take. Cause on one hand, I admire the people that just quit their job and go because they're willing to at least try. And a lot of people struggle with actually just doing it. They think, you know, they they know the right answer, but they don't have the courage to do it. So I respect and appreciate the courage and bravery of I- individuals that go for it, but you also have to cushion it with wisdom, right? And a lot of uh, some of the older generations, because of what they walked through, for example, my parents' generation are less likely to just quit without a plan, right? Or quit without another job, even if they know that they might have uh, an opportunity, but they lean toward safety and security. Why? Because of the the economic things that they experienced as a kid or as, as an adult. And so they're more security driven. And so you really have to balance between the two, what's wise and smart, but also, you know, you got to pull up your big boy, big girl pants, and you really got to make a decision and be courageous to jump into it. Because while lending is more difficult as someone who's self-employed or on your own, yeah. it's still doable. Oh, yeah. And, and there, there is a luxury that a lot of the commercial loans out there, they predicate your lendability, not on you, but on the asset which is pretty great. You pay, a, you pay a premium on rate. So while right now, maybe you can get low threes, you'd be paying low to mid fours on a commercial loan. Mm-hmm. And the amortization schedule is a little shorter usually, mm-hmm. but still doable, you know? So, um, but that was my, that was my goal was build up my cash flow so that I didn't have to worry about the whole lending thing. I already had cash flow coming in from other rentals that I could document as consistent income. So, but yeah, there, there are definitely different challenges between the two. Have you wanted to be part of GoBundance, the tribe of millionaires, but just haven't hit that millionaire status yet? Well, now you can, not even being a millionaire, by joining our new program, GoBundance Emerge. My name's Jamie Gruber, creator of GoBundance Emerge and member of the GoBundance community. And now you can join GoBundance.com slash Emerge, GoBundance.com slash Emerge. Use code Jordan for $100 off this 12-week goal-setting program and mastermind that'll propel you to being a whole-life millionaire. Yeah. And like you said, there always is a way. Um, And the cool thing about those commercial lenders or a lot of them being local bank lenders, this one can be almost 100% on the property. One might be 70% of the property, 30% on you. Um, But with those, you can keep asking questions. 
you're looking to go get a conforming loan, a conventional loan, you can ask 50 lenders questions, say, oh, I actually don't have income. How can we make this work? And they're all going to tell you, you can't make this work. Right. But if you go ask Austin Telco and Broadway Bank and, mm-hmm. you know, our bank, a couple different banks, a question about something like that, you're going to get three different answers. Oh, yeah. So, and I think that's one thing that's really interesting with new investors, like the investors I work with. Sometimes they'll make a call to a lender, like a couple lenders, and they get essentially a no. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, and they freak out. I'm not going to be able to refinance on the back end of my burr or something like that. Mm-hmm. But if you call, yeah, if you call 10 lenders, you're going to get nine or 10 different answers. And there's a beauty of the local bank, like the smaller, more autonomous banks, because with the larger, you know, Chase, Wells Fargo, BOAs, you're a number. Those loan originators are, they're putting in data about you Mm -hmm. and then out spits some, you know, risk variable, which turns into being your rate, right? But with the more regional and local banks, those types of loan officers are actually bringing your recommendation to committee. And they're sitting around a table with guys like you, me, and gals like people we know. And they're saying, I think this is a good investment because it's, you know, real estate is a pretty secure investment as opposed to, you know, they're comparing your loan to Joe Bob who wants to open up a snow cone shack in Ontario, you know? And so they've got a little bit more discretion that they can use. That doesn't mean that you're guaranteed the loan, but at least you can have a conversation about it instead of just a flat no. And yeah. so there's some there's some beauty of the local bank there. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't understand how the two different types of loan processes work. So when you're going to Wells Fargo or Bank of America or any mortgage broker, they're typically originating that loan and then they package it and sell it off. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to Austin Telco, they might hold that loan on their books for the entire term of the loan. Yeah. So like you said, yeah, they can go to the committee and they can say, Hey, you know, I know, I know Jordan or I know Blake and I know they're good stuff. And I know this property, it's right down the street. Um, absolutely helps if you're local, but there's a lot more flexibility there and you can ask questions and get different answers. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of options for, for different investors for sure. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I do a lot of loans with local banks. I've also done a lot of conforming loans at, just through a mortgage broker and there's different tools for different situations. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Like, uh, sounds like you work with a lot of people that are newer and you've got a lot of experience. What's one thing you would tell people about a bad deal you've done or advice on how to avoid problems with the deal? That's a good question. You know, with real estate, it's a balance of art and science. And usually when you want it to be an art, it's more of a science. Mm-hmm. And when you want it to be a science, it's more of an art. It's kind of a, a strange dichotomy. Mm-hmm. But one of the, the beauties of being able to science real estate deals is most of the time, you can find what you're going to pay or what you'll be paid in cash flow, whatever your results or metrics are, whether it's internal rate of return, cash on cash return, whatever it might be, you can know those numbers within a very region, reasonable margin before you even offer on the property. Mm-hmm. which is remarkable, right? That, that's, you, th- you think about the stock market or other, um, uh, say, even venture capital, you don't have as much understanding of what will happen once you get into it. But with real estate, you can calculate how much is my purchase price? What's the rehab going to cost? And get down to, I'm going to make about this much money, give or take, you know, X amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. And that is really, really valuable. 
And um, so being able to know the numbers before you get into a deal can save you a lot of headache. When, when I was new to the remote investing side of things, because I wanted to scale, but I didn't have the money to scale in the Austin market the way that, you know, either even house hacking, you house hack, you can get a, a loan every year, but, you know, you got to show up with, you know, if you're putting 5% down, maybe 20 grand, if you do more than that, it's higher. So you really got to, you've got to have a, a strong earning power and an ability to be pretty frugal and safe and be disciplined <laughs> in order to do that. And so I wanted to start scaling. And so I, I was trying to do the, the remote investing method because I saw the value of it. And I set aside what I called some stupid money. I set aside about $10,000 of tuition to the school of hard knocks because I knew I would pay it and I knew it was worth it. Uh, but I, I wanted some a safety net essentially. And I did my first burr remotely and I had a, a contractor walk off with 12 grand. And uh, I just suddenly I couldn't get a hold of him. I was coming into the market. I was going to go visit and check in on the property and ghosted nothing. Wow. And so um, uh, that was a gut punch. And what I learned from that was there are ways to provide accountability to people remotely that don't require you to be there, but can protect you a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I also misestimated the rehab costs there because I was relying on that contractor mm-hmm. and they didn't have the experience that I was led to believe that they had. And so I learned through that pro- process a bunch, but even in that process, and this is kind of a, a tangential benefit, even in that process where I felt like that was a failure, that property still rolls out $460 a month tax-free to me. Oh, wow. And, and that's after paying all expenses. So while it's cash, on, it's cash on cash return was supposed to be, you know, in the hundreds because I didn't leave too much in after the burr, mm-hmm. after I refinanced, but because of the, you know, loss of $12,000, now it was in the high eighties, right? So I've made all my money back on that entire situation and have a little bit more flexibility. So there's, you know, there's a, there's a, a benefit to that, but I would say, know your numbers before you buy a property define what you consider is successful and then know that metric and be able to say, I think this is either going to be successful or not. I talked to someone recently who she really wanted to get into real estate. So she just bought a $350,000 house to Airbnb. And I said, okay, well, what's that going to cash flow? What are you expecting as far as vacancy? She said, I, I don't know. I'm just wanting to get started. And so that's an example of someone I, I, yeah. I admire that they, you know, they were at least putting, you know, their feet to the pavement and doing something, but it hurt them in the fact that they didn't have enough of a plan. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, the more you can understand the numbers before you buy a property, the better. Absolutely. I love that. Um, and at the same time, I personally don't think you'll ever know a hundred percent of everything. You know, you're not going to know, Hey, this property is going to cash flow $460 a month, but you might know, Hey, it looks like I'm going to cash flow around $400 a month. Yeah. And you can mitigate those risks during the inspections and have a contractor through there and really fig- you can figure everything out. So, my advice to a lot of people is figure out as much as you can before you get a property under contract. And then in your option period, figure out everything to a T. Yes. There's no reason you can't do that. Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, did you ever get your money back or did you find the guy? No, we're, I mean, we're still in litigation. I have, uh, I have an attorney who essentially takes a certain percentage of only if I win. And so I'm just yep. letting him run, but I've nice. focused my, I've essentially had to say, 
is it more beneficial for me to chase down that guy and see if I can get maybe 10 grand back or 12 grand back? Or would I be able to make more money and invest more wisely if I took that intellectual and emotional effort and applied it to my investing? And so that I made that decision a while back where I just said, you know what, if we get something back, great. And if we don't, I'm going to focus on something else so that I can make more, uh, I guess, successful actions out of it. Yeah. No, I love that you just still, you went after him and yeah, you're not doing it. You've just given a piece to the attorney, but he probably gets 30 to 50% of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Whatever. Maybe you don't ever see that, but I think the karma goes out there that, Hey, I'm not going to put up with somebody just taking my money. Um, it's what I believe personally. Well, I'm really connected you. in that market. It's a smaller market. I'm really connected there. So mm-hmm. when people reach out to me and say, hey, I'm a newer investor here. Do you recommend a contractor? I'll say, hey, this is my contractor. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'll also say, you know, there's some people that you might want to watch out for. Sure. You know? um, so uh, one of the ways I protect against that is I do not give, I don't even give half up front anymore. I, yeah. I split it down into at worst 25%. And if it's a larger rehab, like 35 grand, I usually don't more than do more than $5,000 distributions. That way I'm not as gut punched, right? If it were to not work out. Yeah. Something that I've done that's worked well for me too, is I'll buy all the materials and have them shipped over there and say, Hey, mm. this is your, your down payment. Um, once you give me some progress pictures, I'll start paying you. Yeah. But yeah. I don't, and that, that's not always necessary and can be a hindrance too so you got to figure out who you're working with but mm-hmm. uh, yeah you got to find ways to mitigate your risk i think like you said half down it's kind of a lot if you don't know the contractor and you're not in the market uh, mm-hmm. say you're in california and you found a contractor in austin here and you're just going to give them 50 percent of the entire 40 grand rehab down mm-hmm. that's a big risk yeah so definitely get recommendations talk to people Uh, know who you're working with and mitigate your risks no matter what. Yeah, definitely. So like, it sounds like you work with a ton of newer investors and probably have a lot of helping them get started. But what's one thing you tell newer investors when you're first talking to them? Hey guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here. And I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast, wherever you're listening to it, that would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing and I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys. Ah, that's a good question. Uh, I was I was talking to one of my students this morning, and he was asking one of what some of the biggest challenges are. And I think the challenge is different for everybody mm-hmm. because you know when I do my coaching, I'd say ninety percent of our conversation, maybe ninety five, is academic. So it's information like we're talking about, like mm-hmm. get somebody in there during your option period so that you know what those numbers are. Mm-hmm. But the 5% or 10% that's most valuable is more psychological in nature. Mm-hmm. It's fear-based, right? It's, uh, for example, when I was going to go quit my job, I was scared that I was going to lose all our money and my wife was going to resent me, right? Because I love her madly. Mm-hmm. And that I, I processed through that fear. And once I got over that, it was, it was smooth sailing. But everybody's got their own story. One of my students, is, his dad did not manage money well. And so his fear is I'm going to get into a bad deal. I'm going to lose a bunch of money. And because he doesn't understand what the numbers actually are, the magnitude seems like if he's buying a $60,000 house, it seems like he's risking 60 grand when really he could liquidate that. And he's really probably risking four, you know, in the closing costs. Right. And it's, it's actually less than that because we're employing the Burr model with him. 
So um, I think that's that's one thing that is requires some self-reflection, but yields some disproportionate results is being willing to evaluate yourself and be honest with yourself, which is pretty difficult and take feedback from people, take what serves you, you know, chew up the meat, spit out the bones type of uh, situation. And then also the other thing is decisiveness. Uh, I've worked with a lot of people and it tends to like people like doctors. I've got an engineering background, so this is my my world too. Engineers, sometimes people in finance that are more numbers oriented um, can end up in analysis paralysis where they just want more and more data. And what it's actually representing is a fear of actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And so the more decisive someone can be, growing in that skill of decisiveness will help them grow their business and grow their investments for sure. But you've got to recognize why you're not being decisive. Oftentimes it's a fear of some sort and then work through that. So decisiveness and I think self-awareness, teachable is probably are probably the two things that I think are the most valuable for learning the process. Yeah, I love that. I've seen decisiveness be the huge factor. So I'm a realtor. I work with a lot of people who are looking to do their first house hack or looking to buy investment property. And the people who are most successful um, are the people that can just make decisions quickly. They say, oh, this looks good. Let's do it. I I got the data that I need. I'm going to make the decision. What's the best way you've seen? And obviously it sounds like that varies for each person. That makes a lot of sense. What's the best way you've seen for people to overcome their their fear of being decisive? Well, what I'll often often say is if you're buying an investment property, it's different if you're buying your own home because there's some emotion in that. Yeah. Right. But if you're buying uh, buying an investment property, you are not looking for the perfect property. You're not even looking for the perfect market. If you're looking for an investing out of market, you're looking for a good property or market not the absolute best one. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be good. It needs to be oriented toward what your goals are. And if your goals are cash flowing, it needs to cash flow. And you need to have know what your metric is for above this is good. And for me, that's $250 a month. Above that, after all expenses, saving for vacancy CapEx, 250 bucks a month or more, I'm buying that property. And if if I if I don't, it's beca- it's usually because I didn't make a decision quickly enough or I was lazy or undisciplined or something like that. But that, those are my metrics. And so if you know what success looks like, then once you get to that point, it makes it a lot easier to make a decision. Uh, but it's, it's oriented toward your goals. You know, if you're, if you're investing for uh, appreciation, then the house matters probably a little bit less than the area does. Right. So um, if you're investing in Austin, Chances are, regardless of whether it's an open floor layout, closed floor layout, how nice the kitchen is probably going to appreciate pretty nicely over the yeah. next you know, five, 10 years, whatever it might be. Um, so know what your goals are and define your success criteria for that and then stick to it. Sure. Yeah, I love that. And I like how you talked about the, there's, you know, you got to figure out exactly what your goals are. So it's appreciation. So it probably just needs to be here and it needs to not be you know, in the worst location in that general geographic area. But if mm-hmm. it's cash flow, it's all a numbers game. So right. if it meets those numbers, there's nothing more to think about. I love that. Right. Um, I also invest out of area. 
And my business partner is always saying, oh, do you want to see pictures? Do you want to do a walkthrough with me? And I say, I don't care. I don't need to see the house. I could not care less what the house looks like. I care if the numbers work. I care Mm -hmm. if the whole place has fallen down and ratted apart. You guys are going to figure that out. So I need no part in seeing pictures, seeing the outside, seeing what's right. going on with the lawn. I could, couldn't care less. Right. Uh, it makes no difference because we're investing for cash flow. The numbers work. Those. That's all I need to see is the numbers. I don't right. need to see the pictures. I don't need to see where the, the local park is. It, it couldn't matter less. But if I was investing for appreciation, you might just need to see the location, see where it is and say, oh, you know, it's yeah. in Austin. It's close to the domain where the, all the Apple campus is going to be. The domain's exploding. This is great. Let's pull the trigger. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, my priorities, and there's probably others that you could put in here, but I put them in order as number one is cash flow. Mm-hmm. Number two is price of entry. So how much it costs to actually get into the house. And number three is appreciation. Mm-hmm. And I, they're in that order. And so because of that, I seek, you know, markets that, have a high cash flow gradient and then have a reasonably low price of entry. Most of the properties that I'm buying are between, you know, purchase price, usually between or purchase price plus rehab between $40,000 and $110,000 for single family. That's mm-hmm. per unit. So, um, and that's, uh, it's oriented that way because those are my priorities. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you can, if you can list your top couple priorities, that'll help clarify the strategy you end up implementing. Sure. Yeah. And back to, I think it's so you talked about this. It's so important to know your goals because, you know, I know people that are financially free and now they're investing more for appreciation. So they're not looking at something the same way I might be. I'm not financially free yet. They're saying, Hey, I've got more money than I need coming in passively. And I'm going to put this in places where I think it's going to grow my wealth. So mm-hmm. really love that, you know, you got to figure out what you're looking at and then you have to just yeah, pull and, the trigger. And it'll change over time. You know, if yeah. you start with cash flow and then you realize you're making more money so that now you're going to be taxed more, make, maybe it makes sense to buy some appreciation properties. So you get that tax hedge and that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Or maybe it makes sense if you don't have a 401k or a Roth IRA, maybe it makes sense to start contributing more to those because of some of the tax advantages. And then you start kind of diversifying some of your approach, but with a common goal in mind, instead of just diversification for the sake of diversification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. There's so many different tools in the financial world. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not one that's right for any one person, but there's there's absolutely one that's right for any one situation. Exactly. So, but like you said, you have to know your goals first and then you can figure out the rest of that stuff. So, uh, Blake, uh, obviously, we talked a lot about Austin and where the prices are and where we think it's probably going. Of course, nobody has any idea. But what's your best advice for people looking to invest in Austin? So maybe they're looking to house hack um, close to the domain. Maybe they work in one of those tech companies in North Austin. What would you tell somebody like that that's looking to get started? If you're looking to invest in, in Austin, if you're looking to invest for cash flow, I think the best approach probably is house hacking. Maybe it's buying a, a quadplex and living in one of them. It also depends on your family makeup, you know, if you're and your willingness to be flexible. Because if you're, you know, married with three kids, it's going to be a lot harder to house hack because of the challenge that it is moving every year. Or, you know, if you're trying to rent out other rooms in your house, that's going to be challenging. 
Um, and if you're flexible enough to live in one unit of a fourplex, that could make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, if you're going to house, house hack my in for Austin, I think my recommendation is put as little down as you can. Because if you think about it in terms of return on investment, you've got your overall investment, which is not going to change. Your return, or rather your return is not going to change because the market's going to do whatever it, whatever it does. But your investment, how much you put down, you can decide. So you can put 20% down, but that's just a lot more money out of your pocket. I think if you pick three and a half or 5%, good reasons for both, allows more money in your pocket and your ROI is going to be higher in the end. So that with, I think the main thing you need to understand between three and a half and 5% is one, the three and a half percent PMI sticks around forever mm-hmm. until you refinance. Mm-hmm. With 5% down, PMI goes away once you're at 20% equity, which in the Austin market, your, your appreciation is going to be more accelerated than cash flow would be. Yeah. The rental the values aren't going to keep up the way that appreciation is. And so so I, I like the 5% down because your PMI goes away and then you've got an extra 150 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that, would be, that would be my recommendation is, you know, I really love the area up by where the Apple campus is. I really love the, the Wells Branch area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the area down by, uh, golly, what is it? 78724, maybe. Um, it's down by where 183 meets uh, meets 290, just okay, south yeah. southeast of that. Mm-hmm. I think that is that's a prime area, close to downtown, not as developed. Uh, I want to say that um, you know, I guess Elon's area is a little bit even further east of that, southeast, but, yeah. or southeast of that. But there's there's a lot of activity going on over there. Um, I want to say I read that uh, one of the guys that did the the Mueller or Domain area bought a couple hundred acres over there and there's, there's some plans to build out there. So I think that area is going to grow a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that that 290 corridor is finished with most of its uh, construction, it's a lot less of a headache than when, if you would have bought, you know, two or three years ago. So, um, but yeah, I think there's some, there's some great benefits to investing in Austin. Even if you were to buy something as a turnkey, just for appreciation, it could make a lot of sense because I I do think that Austin is going to be growing disproportionately. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to see it slowing down. That's for mm-hmm. sure. So, you know, Blake, we've talked about a lot of different stuff here. Um, and I know you've got so many recommendations for people. What's a favorite business or mindset book you like to recommend to newer people looking to get into real estate investing? I think my favorite recommendation for people is Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. It just, it teaches a different way of thinking about money and thinking about uh, even life to a certain extent, rather than I have to work a W-2 or I have to do that. It teaches you, how do you become rich? And what are the rich doing that regular Joes and Janes aren't? And uh, that it's incredibly powerful. And then his, his second book, Cashflow Quadrant, is really, really helpful as well. Um, so that that's those are kind of my top one two punch for people that are wanting to learn. Yeah, I particularly love Cash Flow Quadrant. Of course, I probably wouldn't have read it without Rich Dad Poor Dad, but mm-hmm. I think for me now and over the last several years, the Cash Flow Quadrant thing's just always stuck in my head. Um, yeah, 
just just the basics of that book are amazing. Just the basics of everything. I should reread Rich Dad Poor Dad because I don't remember it so much. But I try and read it every year. My wife and I are reading it together this year, nice. uh, just because there's just so much meat in it. Um, yeah. I guess reading it, I'm audibling it. You know, it's on Audible. I, if that qualifies for quote unquote reading it, but well, I think there's something to reading and listening. I've read and then listened to a book and gotten mm-hmm. different things out of it. So exactly, I love Audible. Um, Blake, it sounds like you have a lot going on that people might be interested in. So what is the best way for people to get a hold of you to talk more about what you do or maybe your coaching programs? Yeah, you can you can find me on social media. My name is Blake Schwane. The last name is spelled C-H-O-I-S-N-E-T. You can also go to BlakeSchwane.com where you can set up some time for us to talk if you're interested in learning more about what I do and how I help people and real estate. And I've also got some resources there. One of the resources I put together a 2021 best cash flow market report in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, the likes of which I don't know that exists. I've never seen something like it. I hired a software developer to scrape a bunch of data. I took my engineer engineering nerd brain, got a bunch of data on a bunch of different markets, and then uh, synthesized some of that data to put that report together. So that's free. I, I've got that up on my website as well for people that are interested in it. Um, but social media or my website are the best ways to get in touch with me. That's awesome. And just for everybody listening, we will have all that in the show notes. So if you have trouble remembering that or need to just click on the link, it'll be right there for you. Um, last question, Blake, probably the most important question we ask here is what is your favorite restaurant in Austin? That's a good question. I, I want to say that the location I went to, I think recently closed, but it was Veracruz Tacos. Mm-hmm. It was up by Camp Gladiator up on uh, near Mopac and 183. Mm-hmm. And their tacos, their Migas tacos blew my mind. I mean, just so delicious. Um, the one that is still open, I love Paco's Tacos on 51st Street uh, near 35. Uh, Margaret and Alan are the owners, and they're incredibly kind. Uh, their daughters, uh, Kit and... Um, I can't remember the the second daughter's name, but she works that they all they both work there as well. And they're the type that you go once, you show up twice, and they remember your name. Mm-hmm. And especially in a big city, having kind of that small town community feel, mm-hmm. um, I loved when I, I'd have a group of guys, we'd show up every Saturday morning over at Paco's Tacos. That's awesome. Well, Blake, thank you so much for coming on today. Again, yeah, if anybody wants me. to reach reach out to Blake, uh, all these will be in the show notes reach out to him, check out his website, check him out on social media. Um, He would love to help. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you too. Of course.